Welcome to Pete's Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. For this episode, we're going to cover hypertension. Most people think of high blood pressure as a problem for adults, but the evidence says that it's pretty common in pediatrics and that the prevalence has been increasing in the last 20 years. On top of that, kids with high blood pressure become adults with high blood pressure, and the longer the problem goes untreated, the higher the risk of complications. Early identification is the most important step in pediatric hypertension. There isn't any great quality evidence on blood pressure screening, but the American Academy of Pediatrics Clinical Practice Guideline from 2017 recommends checking a blood pressure annually in every child starting at age 3. They also recommend checking at every visit after 3 years old if the patient is obese, taking medications that can cause high blood pressure, or has kidney disease, aortic abnormalities, or diabetes, because all of those factors increase the risk of hypertension. The AAP only recommends screening under 3 years old for kids who are premature or small for gestational age, have congenital heart or kidney disease, recurrent urinary tract infections, or are on medications that can increase their blood pressure. Knowing when to screen your patients isn't very helpful if you don't know what you're looking for, so we should probably talk about definitions. Unlike in the adult world where there are studies on top of studies on long-term outcomes with different target blood pressures, there isn't any outcome-based data to identify goal blood pressures in pediatrics. Instead, all the definitions are based on the distribution of blood pressure based on age, sex, and height. The old guidelines define normal blood pressure as both a systolic and diastolic blood pressure less than the 90th percentile, and after that, things got complicated. The next step up was prehypertension, which was defined as a blood pressure between the 90th and 95th percentile in younger kids, but for adolescents, the range could be the 90th to 95th percentile or 120 over 80 to the 95th percentile if 120 over 80 was lower than the 90th percentile. Finally, hypertension was a systolic or diastolic blood pressure at or above the 95th percentile. You can go ahead and forget all of that because the latest guidelines tried to make everything simpler. It's still kind of tricky, but they made a good effort. The 2017 guidelines divide patients into two groups, age 1 to 13 and 13 and older. For patients under 13, everything is still percentile-based, with normal blood pressure less than the 90th percentile and elevated blood pressure, formerly known as prehypertension, at the 90th to 95th or 120 over 80 to the 95th, whatever range is lower. Stage 1 hypertension is the 95th percentile to whatever the 95th percentile measurement is plus 12 millimeters of mercury, or 130 over 80 to 139 over 89, again, whichever range is lower. Stage 2 hypertension is a blood pressure higher than the 95th percentile plus 12, or over 140 over 90. The blood pressure cutoffs for the different percentiles also changed in the latest update because the guideline authors decided not to include data from overweight and obese kids because they didn't want data from a group with a high prevalence of hypertension to skew the percentiles. I told you, it's still kind of tricky. Things are much simpler in the 13 and older group. Instead of being percentile-based, it's just based on set blood pressure standards. Normal is less than 120 over 80, Elevated blood pressure is a systolic pressure of 120 to 129, with diastolic still less than 80. Stage 1 hypertension is 130 over 80 to 139 over 89. And stage 2 is anything 140 over 90 or higher. Knowing the screening recommendations and blood pressure cutoff points is important, because it's been found again and again that pediatric hypertension is underdiagnosed. 
A study published in Pediatrics in 2012 looked at survey data from 2000 to 2009 for patients between 3 and 19 years old, the group that should be getting at least annual blood pressure screening, and found that blood pressure was checked at preventive visits only 67% of the time. That number jumped to 84% when only overweight or obese patients were included, so credit for keeping an eye on the high-risk kids, but screening should be universal. Another study, this one was published in the Journal of Pediatrics in 2010, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to screw up the author's name, by Mirren Bielsma and her colleagues, looked at why pediatricians fail to diagnose hypertension. They surveyed 197 providers at centers around the Netherlands and found that 71% of respondents only measured blood pressure if the child had risk factors, and that 65% only compared the reading to reference data if they suspected it was elevated. For me, the interesting part of the study was the quiz. They gave the participants 12 sample cases with patients and blood pressures and asked them to categorize the blood pressure without using reference tables. 74% of physicians underdiagnosed at least one of the six abnormal cases, and doctors that reported frequently using the reference tables in practice didn't perform any better than those who didn't. I don't blame them. With age, sex, height, systolic pressure, diastolic pressure, and all the percentile breakdowns, there are way too many numbers in the tables to even begin to absorb. And even if you did manage to memorize them, they just changed last year. There is some evidence out there that using tools and electronic medical records can help with diagnosis, which is why the AAP recommends programming the medical record system to automatically flag abnormal for age blood pressures. Even when you know what you're doing, Diagnosing hypertension is a process. Ideally, your patient should be sitting calmly, which, good luck with a four-year-old, and the bladder on the cuff needs to be the right size. The width should be at least 40% of the arm circumference, and the length should be at least 80% of the arm circumference. Since this kept coming up when I was studying for boards, I'll say that again. The width of the bladder on the cuff should be at least 40% of the arm circumference, and the length should be at least 80%. If the initial blood pressure measurement is high, you should get two more measurements during the same visit and average them. Ideally, at least one of the measurements should be with a manual cuff. Automated blood pressure is usually pretty accurate, but manual is still considered to be the gold standard, to the point where if all three of your measurements are automated and come out high, you're supposed to do two manual measurements and just use those two for your average. So switching to a manual cuff after the first high number is really going to save you time overall. What to do next changes based on where your patient falls on the hypertension spectrum. For elevated blood pressure, 90th to 95th percentile, 120 over 80 to the 95th percentile, or a systolic blood pressure of 120 to 129 depending on your patient, the recommendation is for lifestyle counseling. It's exactly what your doctor might have talked to you or your parents about for blood pressure management. Healthy diet, regular exercise, and getting enough sleep. If it's appropriate for the patient, you should also think about a referral to a nutritionist or a weight management program. You give all of that six months to work before you repeat a blood pressure, and if it's still in the elevated range, you check the pressure in both arms and one leg to evaluate for aortic abnormalities. As long as the extremity blood pressures are the same and the patient hasn't crossed from elevated blood pressure to true hypertension, you give lifestyle adjustments another six months before your next check-in. If they are still in the elevated range, you start some basic diagnostic evaluation, which we'll get to in a few minutes, consider a referral to nephrology or cardiology, and, if possible, set up ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. A quick note on ambulatory monitoring. 
This isn't one of the cuffs you can find at the pharmacy. Those can be helpful for monitoring patients who have a diagnosis of hypertension, but shouldn't be used for making that diagnosis. An ambulatory monitor is a more accurate medical device that checks the blood pressure at various times during the day and can be helpful for ruling out doctor-related anxiety as a cause of high blood pressure in the office. Anytime your patient's blood pressure falls into stage 1 hypertension, the 95th percentile to the 95th percentile plus 12 millimeters of mercury, or 130 over 80 to 139 over 89, you still start with lifestyle counseling, but because the patient is already in a higher risk range, you repeat the measurement in one to two weeks. If they're still in the stage one range during that visit, you do the two arm and one leg blood pressures, consider weight management and nutrition referrals, and give the lifestyle interventions another three months to work. If the patient is still in the stage one range after three visits, you set up ambulatory monitoring if it's available, start a basic diagnostic workup, and either consider a referral to nephrology or cardiology, or start treatment yourself. Finally, if your patient's blood pressure fits for stage 2 hypertension, which is anything higher than the 95th percentile plus 12, or over 140 over 90, you do the two arms and one leg blood pressure at the same visit, give lifestyle counseling, and either see the patient yourself or have them seen by a nephrologist or cardiologist within a week. If there's still stage 2 at the follow-up appointment, it's time to move to ambulatory monitoring, diagnostic evaluation, and treatment or subspecialty referral. That was a lot, but it's really the same interventions on different timelines. Everybody gets lifestyle counseling to start out with, and the length of time before follow-up is shorter the higher the blood pressure. 6 months for elevated, 1-2 to two weeks for stage 1, and within a week for stage 2. The next step is an evaluation for aortic abnormalities with upper and lower extremity blood pressures during the next follow-up visit, or at the first appointment if it's stage 2. All roads end with diagnostic evaluation and treatment or subspecialty referral. Of course, that all goes out the window if your patient has symptomatic hypertension, things like pounding headaches, confusion, chest pain, trouble breathing, at any blood pressure, or has a blood pressure more than 30 millimeters of mercury above the 95th percentile, or over 180 over 120. Those patients get a trip straight to the emergency room for management. The main goal of the diagnostic evaluation in hypertension is to separate primary hypertension, the people whose blood pressure just runs high, from secondary hypertension, which is high blood pressure that's a symptom of another condition. That matters because those other conditions are often treatable, and taking care of them takes care of the blood pressure problem. Returning to the biggest theme of this podcast, your diagnostic workup starts with a good history and physical exam. On history, pay attention to things like weight problems or a family history of hypertension, both of which are more likely to point you towards primary hypertension. As for secondary hypertension, the clues in the history depend on what the problem is, which is why you need to be thorough. Snoring can be a sign of sleep apnea, poor sleep and poor weight gain could mean hyperthyroidism, and of course there are always medications like the stimulants used for ADHD or even oral contraceptives, all of which can cause hypertension, and that's just the start of the list. A nutrition and exercise history is also important because lifestyle counseling is the first step in treatment for everybody. Physical exam is where you can look for even more signs of secondary hypertension. Remember, somebody with primary hypertension is going to look completely normal. Tachycardia and abnormal four-extremity blood pressures can point you towards an underlying cardiac cause. Large tonsils or adenoids bring you back around to snoring and sleep apnea. And syndromic features can point you to just about anything. B12 
Beyond the initial history and exam, the lab and imaging workup depends on the patient. The AAP recommends a urinalysis, lipid panel, and basic chemistry panel, including renal function, for everybody, and that for obese patients, you add on a glycohemoglobin to screen for diabetes, ALT and AST to look for fatty liver, and make sure that the lipid panel is drawn when the patient is fasting. You can add other tests like a fasting glucose, sleep study, or TSH based on the history you get, but the evidence doesn't support doing that kind of evaluation unless the story takes you there. For imaging, the only things you're really looking for are signs of kidney disease or renal artery stenosis. Renal artery stenosis leads to hypertension by restricting blood flow to one or both of the kidneys. When the kidney sees less blood, it thinks the solution is more blood pressure, so it turns on all the compensatory mechanisms to raise blood pressure, even though everything is actually fine for the rest of the body. The AAP recommends a renal evaluation for hypertensive patients under 6 years old, or anyone with an abnormal urinalysis or renal function on lab testing. How you do that evaluation takes a little thought. The three options out there are ultrasound with Doppler, CT angiography, and magnetic resonance or MR angiography. There aren't any good studies in pediatrics about the sensitivity and specificity of CT and MR, but in adults, CT angiography is 94% sensitive and 93% specific, and MRI is 90% sensitive and 94% specific for detecting renal artery stenosis. The problem in pediatrics is that doing a CT means exposure to contrast and radiation, and most kids will need sedation to get an MRI. None of that is ideal, which is why most people come down on renal ultrasound and Doppler. It's most reliable for patients who are 8 or older and cooperative, who have a BMI less than the 85th percentile, but if the results aren't convincing enough, you can always go to CT or MR as a backup plan. Once you've diagnosed your patient with hypertension and ruled out or treated the underlying causes, it's time to start thinking about treatment. The AAP recommends targeting a blood pressure less than the 90th percentile for age and height or less than 130 over 80, whichever is the lower number, and getting there takes a combination of lifestyle and medication. We touched on lifestyle a little bit earlier, but getting more specific, the DASH diet, dietary approaches to stop hypertension, is the most tested nutritional approach to managing high blood pressure. It's heavy on fruits, vegetables, low-fat dairy, whole grains, and fish, poultry, and other lean meats while cutting down on sodium and sweets. I know that's probably what most people would come up with on their own if you told them to eat healthier, but I just said it was well-studied, not innovative. Patients should also aim to get 30 to 60 minutes of at least moderate physical activity at least 3 to 5 days a week. Weight management is the third part of the lifestyle approach, but if someone is staying active and eating well, their weight should start to fall in line without too many extra steps. Medications for hypertension in kids always trip me up. It's something I do all the time in the adult world, but it comes up for me so rarely in pediatrics that I assume I must be missing something. After prepping this episode, I'm happy to tell you it's not that hard. You start with one medication at the low end of the dosing range and titrate up every two to four weeks until the blood pressure is under control, you hit the maximum dose, or your patient starts having side effects. At that point, you add a second agent and do the whole process again. Studies in pediatrics don't show much difference in the efficacy between calcium channel blockers, ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, and thiazide diuretics although there seems to be a preference for saving thiazides for a second line because the other medications can cause some fluid retention. You can use home blood pressure measurements to help adjust doses, 
this is the one place those cuffs you can buy at the pharmacy come in handy, but you should see the patient in clinic every four to six weeks until their blood pressure is under control. And that's all for hypertension. Remember that everyone over three years old should have their blood pressure checked once a year, and that patients with risk factors like obesity and diabetes should be checked at every single visit. Diagnosing hypertension in pediatrics is a long process that involves a lot of return visits and repeat measurements, and you should always check the tables because even docs that use them all the time tend to underdiagnose their patient's blood pressure. What to do with the high blood pressure depends on how high it is, but on an exam, the patients who need immediate intervention for stage 2 hypertension or worse should be screamingly obvious, and everyone else should start out with lifestyle modification. Workup is mostly limited to checking basic chemistry, lipids, and a urinalysis, with extra labs and maybe a renal ultrasound thrown in depending on your patient. Look for secondary causes, especially in younger patients, but once those are ruled out, the medication approach is to start low with an ACE inhibitor, angiotensin receptor blocker, calcium channel blocker, or thiazide diuretic, and take slow steps up until things are under control. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, give us a rating in Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever else you find your podcasts. I'm always working on more episodes, so if you have suggestions or feedback, you can email me directly at pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Pedsoup.